The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to the Capital Weekly Podcast. I am Capital Weekly Editor Rich Eisen, uh, joined as always by my partner in crime, Tim Foster. How are you doing today, Tim? I'm well, Richie. You could tell you were just at a crime writer's convention because you always call me your partner in crime. I said, you really <laughs> want to be a mystery novelist. Yes, well, we'll see. Aspiring is always going to be in front of the name, but we'll, we'll see. So if if and when things come, come together on that, believe me, I'll be shouting it from the rooftops. Uh, there's something else, though, I want to shout from the rooftops today is that we have a great guest with us. Uh, if you're a regular read of, reader of Capital Weekly, uh, you know that... We are joined quite often there by one of the capital's most respected and uh, visible these days uh, experts on what goes on in the legislative process. Uh, law professor, lobbyist, writer extraordinaire, Chris McKaylee. How are you doing today, Chris? I'm doing well, Rich. Thanks for having me. Hi, Tim. Hello. Well, and again, as I noted, a lot of folks, if you've if you've been reading, especially in the last uh, couple of months, uh, Chris is the author of a series that we've been running, which he has been uh, very graciously providing to us called The McKaylee Files, where if you want to know how something works in the Capitol, and I don't mean the political stuff, I mean the actual parliamentary process of the Capitol, I really don't think there is, it's not hyperbole, Chris, to say there there's very few people who know it quite as well as you do. And uh, maybe to prove that point, you've got a couple of um, basically new books on the California parliamentary process. Uh, One is the Handbook on Legislative Drafting in California. The other is the Handbook on California's Legislative Process. I will tell you, even for all my years of covering politics, uh, I I learn something new every time I read one of your stories. So, Well, that's good. Yes, right. Exactly. I mean, (laughs) that's the goal. Earlier in the year, I think I had a question on something. I can't remember what it was. And I had this thought. This was months ago. I had the thought, who who can explain to me how this how this works? You were the first name that came into my mind. And I called you and you very graciously, even though I called you completely out of the blue, you very graciously took 10 minutes and explained how it all works. So I can tell you from firsthand experience, nobody knows this stuff better than Chris. Give us a little background on the books, because I know they, they came out before, but these are these are greatly expanded versions of those, correct? Yeah, so the the first book I wrote on my own uh, is called Understanding the California Legislative Process. And obviously it's it was an effort to describe the from a layperson's perspective, hopefully, a lot of the procedural, uh, issues that arise in the California legislature, whether it was the committee process or the floor process, uh, even a little bit about the institution itself, based uh, roughly on a series of articles I had done, sort of formed the basis of that book. And then I wrote, obviously, a number of articles. I think there was maybe 85 or so chapters to it. And um, you know, a couple of uh, folks, uh, former Assemblyman Ted Lempert's been using the book in his California um, uh, politics course at UC Berkeley. I know it was uh, used a semester or two at UC 
uh, San Diego and uh, Judge Larry Brown from the Sac Superior Court who teaches California legislative process at UC Davis King Hall School of Law has been using the book as well uh, for a few years. And um, since then, in early 2000, when it was published, and of course, I finished writing it, what, four years ago in, in um, probably fall of 2019, submitted it to the publisher. Uh, since then, over the last four years, I've written quite a bit more on the process and realized that even though I thought back then I had covered so much, I actually had missed out on uh, quite a number of, of different things. And so I worked diligently and um, instead of having, you know, about 85 or so, or sorry, about 120 uh, chapters in that first book on the legislative process, I wrote about another 100 chapters. Now, to be fair, Rich, I do short chapters. They're not very few are particularly lengthy. You know, it only takes so long to explain, you know, what is or is not the inactive file or uh, why a bill is on consent or is eligible for the consent file and the difference between the assembly rules and the Senate rules, right? I mean, it doesn't take that long. So yeah, there's a high volume of chapters, but again, two or three pages per chapter, uh, et cetera. So, um, you know, but it turned into really a handbook, uh, my terminology, but I initially thought maybe a second edition, but when I doubled the number of chapters, I sort of moved away from the notion of just calling it the second edition. And I really envisioned with this book and the second one to truly be a handbook where, um, you know, legislative staff, um, executive branch folks, and certainly the lobby corps uh, would in fact view it as a handbook and, and maybe have it on their bookshelf to use. And as a textbook, yeah, it's a little lengthy. Uh, but again, I think if uh, a professor um, assigned a, a number of readings, you know, to a twice a week type class, you could easily get through it. So. Well, and I think one of the things that's important here is that this is not information that's always that easy to come by, right? I mean, I think California is one of uh, maybe a couple dozen states that doesn't, you know, doesn't print out that information. I, I think on at least on legislative drafting, but, but it, you know, Please explain to us a little bit about, you know, the kinds of things you'll get here that are are maybe hard to get other places. Well, first on the process book, you can read, look, where do we get our procedural rules? We get them first from the Constitution in Article 4, which deals with the legislative branch. Okay. Then we have provisions, a limited number, but we have provisions of the California Government Code statutes that deal with enactment of a bill, a resolution, and other procedural things. You know, uh, at the end of session, we deal with a problem known as uh, chaptering out, where a later enacted statute chapters out an earlier enacted statute when they amend the same code section. That's found in the government code. Then we have the three sets of rules from the legislature, the joint rules, the assembly rules for their house, the Senate rules, and then technically a number of committees, if not most of them have committee rules. 
And so you can see we have a, a lot of different places where we have those rules and you can read them for yourself, but it's what I try to do in these short chapters is explain what that language means that's found like in the constitution or the government code in sort of a, a plain English uh, type of approach. Uh, then I'll often say, here's how they do it in the assembly versus the Senate and vice versa, compare and contrast so that in one place you can understand here's how each house handles it. Uh, and then perhaps some personal experience or other insights, because ultimately it's hard to, you know, fully appreciate these rules until you experience them. It, it reminds me, Rich, years ago <clears throat> when I was a, uh, a young soccer coach, I was also refing at that time. And I remember going through one of the training sessions and some folks after their first couple of games, they said, oh, my God, I read the rules. I knew them. I got like 100 percent on the on the exam and I got my certification. And then I got out on the field and I had to actually apply those rules. It was a lot more difficult, you know. It's the same thing here in the sense that any one of us can read something out of the joint rules or something out of the Constitution. Uh, until you see it in action or hear it on the floor, it's very different and experience uh, going through a rule waiver or what it means to um, get your bill on the 28-8 list out of Senate appropriations, for example. So... I also try to bring some real world experience to explaining these different rules rather than you just looking at them, which you can obviously do on the Internet. So, so, Chris, to put this in a real world context. Yeah. We just passed the, the suspense. Friday was as we record this was suspense day. Yeah. How would you explain that? And like, for example, give our listeners an example in your book. How would you explain what suspense is and, and how that works? Yeah, well, I think what I do is, as I say that, you know, decades, a number of decades ago, I mean, I've been lobbying for over 25 years and it was in existence well before then. So I say, you know, for a number of decades now, the two fiscal committees of the Assembly and Senate basically pull together all of the bills that they have in their jurisdiction, in their possession. And uh, through a series of different lenses, uh, all the bills dealing with a policy area, bills authored by a particular legislator and other factors, try to determine how much money we have to spend and how we're going to spend it. And then on one day after those decisions are made, they basically announce those to the public. I always point out that the thresholds are very low. Uh, 50,000 in one house and 150,000 in the other, which haven't been changed in 25 years. So the vast majority of bills go to the suspense file um, and get that consideration and then a quick vote. Yeah. Chris, one of the things you you said something earlier that I wanted to note, which is the these two words, plain language. Yeah. Because, uh, it's certainly one of the things our readers, I know, appreciate when they read uh, your problems with us is that you're taking something that's often incredibly complex, you know, drafted by lawyers, 
meant to be deciphered by lawyers most of the time and put it in a language that, you know, just people who are not lawyers uh, can understand. Um, in that regard, are the books aimed more at that audience that is not lawyers or are they aimed more at the, at the full-time legislative staff or folks there who need to understand this as part of the daily job they do? Well, I've tried to, you know, strike the proverbial balance, Rich. <clears throat> I mean, generally, I try to do it for the non-legislative person, but at the same time, want it to be a reference work for those who work in and around the California State Capitol. Um, so, yes, it is a college law school textbook, but it's also something that you or I, a junior legislative staffer or a senior uh, seasoned legislative staffer. You know, I've gotten, I remember at the end of last session, I got a call from uh, a legislative staffer who said, I've been here for 20 years and I always get confused over explaining the following. And I was trying to do it to my staff and I didn't do a very good job. Can you help me? Uh, and so I boiled it down and, and gave her a few talking points that she could explain this concept to her staff, um, you know, and because sometimes there are some issues that arise in the process that happen, but once a year or every two years, you know, there are, you know, every two years when we uh, get to the end of the session near the August 31st deadline, uh, people always say, I know there are some bills that can be considered after August 31st. What are they? You know, and they're there in Article 4 and, you know, but people don't think about it because it occurs once every two years. Right. Mm -hmm. And so it's hopefully right there in an easy reference again for longtime staffers, brand new staffers. But in theory, somebody who's uh, you know, again, in Judge Brown's um, King Hall course on the legislative process. Well, and I would add uh, political reporters uh, to that <laughs> who desperately reporters. need to understand what a lot of these terms mean. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, Rich, I mean, for yourself, you cited when you called back in the spring on some stuff and, you know, other members of the Capitol Press Corps. Um, I've always enjoyed fielding. Uh, calls from those folks uh, and happy to explain uh, either, you know, nuanced procedural things or otherwise, because they do an important job as you do, which is educating the public about uh, what is going on. And while most of the time, you know, you and other members of the Capitol Press Corps are focused on, uh, if you will, the substance, you know, like the, the uh, what's contained in the fentanyl related legislation uh, every once in a while procedural things like the suspense file or why did they waive rules so that there could be a special hearing of the public safety committee to reconsider some of those bills you know um, I think it's important to also explain you know yeah to the press about um, you know these procedural things so that they can turn around and explain it to the general public, their readers, their listeners, et cetera, um, so that they understand what their elected representatives are doing here at the state capitol. And I often wonder, too, I, you know, I've often said, especially around issues like technology or certain health things, you know, there's a handful of lawmakers that are versed and know what they're talking about. But often, particularly with things like technology, 
by the time they understand a particular technology, it's moved so far beyond them that they're they're <laughs> always at this disadvantage. And I wonder, do you find the same thing with this with the parliamentary process where, you know, a staffer or people who've been around a long time, they eventually get it down pretty well, but are they constant are they in a constant state of explaining to their lawmaker just exactly how something works? Well, remember, it, uh, there are going to be a couple of times every uh, 10 years or so that we're going to get a larger influx. As you know, on December 5th of last year, they swore in uh, more than two dozen new legislators, you know, close to a quarter of the California legislature is uh, brand new in their first year. They're going to experience, they've experienced their first budget, their first house of origin. And then, uh, you know, next week they're going to experience their first end of session. Uh, and all that comes, all of that, which comes with it. And so, yeah, I think a lot of the um, staffer, there's a lot of new staffers in both houses. Uh, many of the new members brought in, uh, folks who had not worked in the legislature before. So they're, they go through their own internal training. I mean, uh, but, you know, if any of my materials can help in that regard, um, that's wonderful. Um, and otherwise, the seasoned folks who are staffing a lot of these new members uh, obviously have to explain things to their legislator. And again, it's it's one thing to explain you know, some of these issues like a wharf, you know, without reference to file when they take something up that's not on the daily file. Um, and then to actually do it or be the legislator who gets up and says that they want to take this bill up um, and, you know, pass it out or adopt the or concur in the other house's amendments, uh, etc. Their staff can explain it to them, but once they go through it a few times, then maybe they'll uh, understand better uh, what it means, um, you know, to do so. So there's always training and retraining or educating or just reminding, look, again, I've been doing this stuff for a quarter of a century now, and there are plenty of things every year that I have to be reminded of, you know, all like, I know there's a rule on this, but is it a two-thirds waiver, a three-fourths waiver, you know, or other things. Because if you're not dealing with it on a regular basis, you see it once a year or every, or the even-numbered year or the odd-numbered year, then you might not see that issue for for uh, another two years, right? And so you got to remind yourself something of uh, sometimes about these rules. And now, are there any uh, legislators, either current or former, who you look at who are really masters of the parliamentary procedure, who were able to use that to their advantage with maybe their less informed colleagues? Sure. I mean, there were, look, to be fair, when I started, um, you know, as term limits were just starting to take effect, you had a lot of the, you know, true old timers who had been around and so they really knew the most masterful, of course, in my first few years as a lobbyist was the last year of uh, then Speaker Willie Brown's tenure. You know, probably no one knew things better uh, than him and how to use those rules to one's advantage. I think some of the committee chairs, uh, certainly in the in the early times, but even more recently, you know, the Ken Cooleys of the world and, and others who 
who understood not just the rule itself, but, um, you know, the purpose behind some of those. Now, naturally, the folks who have that role, uh, currently Sue Parker, the chief uh, clerk of the assembly, who also serves as chief parliamentarian and worked for the longtime chief clerk, Dotson Wilson, um, you know, Bernadette McNulty, the deputy uh, secretary of the state Senate and their parliamentarian. I mean, these are the folks who are um, the true experts and obviously advise legislators and did a heck of a job during uh, COVID in particular. As you guys know, in the Senate, you know, they had a lot of issues when they had to move all but one member of the Senate Republican caucus to re a remote location, right? They had to zoom in for the floor sessions and they considered um, remote voting and uh, the assembly at one point considered a constitutional amendment, passed it out of their house. The Senate didn't take it up uh, to allow voting by proxy. You know, uh, COVID definitely taught us a lot about the rules and public participation and and other things. So I think the folks who live through that, you know, Kevin Mullen, a uh, now congressman who was the speaker pro tem uh, under Anthony Rendon and ran, ran most of the floor sessions. You know, he was doing it during COVID, which was quite a challenging time. So. Yeah, you know, Chris, you mentioned Sue Parker. I mean, that's uh, who uh, we included her this year in the top 100. And uh -huh. you just laid out probably vastly better than I ever ever have in this process of why we did include people like her in uh, in the top 100 this year, because I think it's a prime example of someone who has to know so much more than most people would ever imagine and 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 that and her knowing her job is so critical to everybody else being able to do their job, and that yeah. that was one of the things we really took into this year's process. So, thank you for uh, for bringing for name checking <laughs> her there because that that gives us a little a little validation for some of the. Oh know, no, question. I mean, and and some of those folks hold a role that you know many, um even those involved in the day-to-day -day lobbying or legislative process don't realize how much all the folks in the assembly chief clerk's office and all the folks who staff the um, secretary of the Senate office, how much they do. Those people who work at the desk, whether it's the file clerk, the history clerk, the reading clerks. I mean, these are the people who, really make this place hum you know they help when the <laughs> when the houses are processing rich you know three and four hundred measures a day during the last week of session you know it's those types of folks it's the leadership staff both the um, speaker pro 10 but the republican leader the floor staff who you know, make sure that bills don't fall through the cracks and, you know, everything gets taken up properly and with proper notice and that they're complying with the 72 hour and print rule and and all of those uh, things. So there are some very important people who work in the California legislative process who, uh, you know, often don't get recognized. And it's not just the recognition, it's because a lot of them folks aren't aware because they generally operate behind the scenes. You know? Right.
Yeah. Well, we don't want to keep you too long, Chris, but I cannot, oh, no. I cannot let you go without asking. You know, we are recording this uh, about a week left in uh, I mean, a little more than a week left in the in the legislative session. By the time it runs, it'll just be a few days. What are there things you're expecting? And I don't mean necessarily your clients or anything like that, but just we always seem to have this rush at the end of a million things where we're trying to, uh, you know, I, I know a lot of people think, oh, we'll do a we'll do this bill as a gut and a man, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. From a parliamentary procedure, are there things that you that you look for in this last week when it's the the this, the, the floodgate rush to try to get to the end and get your stuff done? Is there something that you expect or anticipate for this week? I don't think anything particularly unique. I mean, look, we. <clears throat> For good or for bad, uh, let's compare and contrast Congress. You know, you can introduce a bill anytime you want. The committees can hear bills anytime they want. Uh, Not much gets done except for a few big bills and they lump things together in one single bill and, you know, move it through the process. California, like many other states, particularly those who have far shorter sessions, you know, some of them are 60, 90, 120 days max. You know, uh, we're one of the full time, but we, like other state legislatures, are very calendar driven. Right. And there are a few exceptions, things that are granted rule waivers, gotten amend. But generally, we have a deadline for when bills have to be introduced, when they have to pass their policy committee and fiscal committee and House of Origin and all of that. And then, of course, with the use of the suspense files so that the fiscal committees can consider the fiscal ramifications of the hundreds of bills that sit on their suspense file twice a year, House of Origin and Second House. The reality is, is that we have crunch periods. um, And the only way to deal with that is to reduce the bill load. And we could have a whole episode on my beliefs about how we're an unfortunate bill factory and we should substantially reduce our bill loads, but save that for another day in conversation. So the reality is, is that, you know, they get jammed with a lot of votes in these last eight or so session days. They have to use the consent calendar, uh, consent file generously. Um, And as you can expect, they try to get rid of the proverbial low-hanging fruit. So a lot of the non-controversial or what they sometimes call the uh, support-support bill, you know, where both uh, political parties support a measure. Let's move those three things, uh, those bills and measures through quickly so that in the last week we get stuck with the real headbangers, the really difficult bills that we have to do. And, you know, so... Uh, sometimes they have to do some maneuvering, but you know, the Prop 54, the voters' adoption of Prop 54 in 2016, and the adoption of the 72 hour in print rule has uh made some dramatic changes. Sure, we still have gotten amends, sure, they still jam things into budget trailer bills and all of that. Sometimes they have abbreviated hearings and all that, but at least the last three days, there's nothing new in the legislature. We know what's out there. And I think that's a big change. You know, I was explaining to some (laughs) uh, newer lobbyists who obviously started post Prop 54, we would have to wait until the adjournment motion, because literally with bill, just a handful of bills to go, you might hear Uh, Members of the Rules Committee, please convene in the Rules Committee room. And 
lobbyists would go running over there and all they wanted to know was what new bill is coming out, you know, and you could literally have an education be bill become a public safety bill or a revenue tax bill, and they would jam it through in hours, sometimes fewer than in a few hours on the last night of session. They can't do that anymore. So we've had some changes to the process, I think all for the good, uh, but we're still ultimately a bill factory. And so we give a lot of short shrift to consideration of some very significant policy issues just because legislators have to process so many damn bills in the last two weeks of session that they can only spend X amount of time debating, discussing and thinking about them. You know, you brought up something actually I did want to ask you, which is, you know, we've asked you now about the press picking your brain, staffers picking your brain. How about other lobbyists? Like you say, you've been around a long time. Not everybody has. Do you get a lot of those calls from your fellow members of the third house saying, Chris, please help me make sure I understand this? All the all the time. You know, I I love my profession and I love my colleagues. I've been a long time uh, board member, executive committee of IGA, the Institute of Governmental Advocates. Um, I want to help my colleagues as much as possible. So, yeah, I probably field questions from my fellow uh, lobbyists more than, uh, you know, any category of folks. But, you know, I'm more than happy to uh, share my thoughts or my insights or remind them of particular rules. Um, again, I I want to see everyone do well and uh, represent their clients to the fullest uh, extent possible. And so I'm more than happy to field uh, calls from my colleagues. You know, and, and you've actually brought that idea of, of working with your colleagues on on other sides of the aisle, people that are obviously working against you on other bills Yeah, uh, with your publications. I know that you one of your books is actually a coalition of lobbyists wrote the book under your guidance. I remember Jennifer Fearing was one of the authors. Yeah. Uh, the McHugh's were, were other authors. I yep. there were a lot more. Uh, so that's something you sort of have lived. You're not just saying it here. It's you actually do it. Oh yeah. I mean, I've, you know, I never, I only did um, tax uh, legal work and political and election law legal work, but uh I, I kind of sort of envisioned it's the same way I would hope. I don't know it for certain, but I would hope like, you know, the public defender and the DAs, you know, that all those folks, sure, they duke it out in the courtroom, but otherwise they're collegial and, and work to support each other. Everybody's doing an, an important job. I've always gotten along well with uh, even those who I, um, you know, do battle with, if you will. You know, most of my work is on behalf of the California business community, uh, the employer community, which means um, I'm often butting heads with uh, my friends in the labor movement and plaintiffs, lawyers and employment lawyers and folks like that. But I think I have a very good working relationship uh, with all of them and, and get along. I remember maybe my first or second year of lobbying. Do you guys remember Lenny Goldberg? Of course, yeah. 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 So he represented um, the California Tax Reform Association, basically labor-funded, opposed everything, opposes most of the stuff from the business community. And so, you know, I was... And lived and lived to 
to repeal Prop 13. Prop 13, of I course. Think, he railed no, against think, it any chance he got. Right at this, at this moment, I'm sure Lenny Goldberg is up. I think he lives in Oregon now. He's probably thinking, like, yeah. how can I repeal Prop 13? <laughs> yes. not, it doesn't affect moment, me anymore, but... Yeah, but I remember early on, like first or second, because when I first started lobbying, I did just tax and legal issues for the employer community, for businesses. So I just appeared in like Judiciary Committee and Revin Tax. That's all I did. And so the trial lawyers, uh, I battled in the Judiciary Committees and the um, the plaintiff's bar folks and uh, Lenny primarily in Revin Tax. And I remember... <laughs> A colleague in the business community, I said, well, I was talking to Lenny about this. And he said, what? You talked to Lenny? And I said, yeah, why? Oh, well, I mean, he hates us. He, you know, opposes everything we do. And I said, yeah, but I still got to talk to him because I want to hear what his thoughts are and what he's saying and all of that. But, you know, so I, I think from early on as a lobbyist, I was like, I always talk to the opposition and hear what they say. And sometimes it results in negotiating a, a resolution and we can come to neutrality on something or join forces on something. But um, so I've just always, you know, treated colleagues uh, respectfully and collaboratively. And sometimes we're on the same side and sometimes we not, we're not. Well, I think we all, uh, as citizens, not as reporters and lobbyists or whatever, as citizens, we appreciate. And I think we really miss that Collegiality. I know we talk about it like it's such a past tense thing, but appreciate uh, those of you in the current tense who are doing it and living it. That That's definitely something I think everybody should appreciate. Well, again, Rich, I think when I started, you know, it was <clears throat> what, you know, Willie Brown was speaker. Uh, uh, David Roberti was pro tem. Ken Maddy was the minority leader. And even though they would... Uh, fight about policy. They were very, very dear friends. You know, my first contract lobbying boss, um, Denny Carpenter, was a former Republican senator from Orange County. And, you know, one of his best friends was Willie Brown. And in fact, when he took on a partner, it was Kathy Snodgrass, one of the first name partners of a major lobbying firm. And <clears throat> She joined Denny after being chief legal counsel for three years to Speaker Brown. And it was on the recommendation of his dear friend, Speaker Brown, that Denny, you know, brought Kathy on as a partner. And it was, you know, Carpenter Snodgrass and associate. So, you know, I started lobbying um, in a bipartisan or even nonpartisan, Denny and Kathy used to say, but with very collegial people who would, you know, duke it out on the floor of the legislature or in committee and then, you know, go for drinks or watch movies in the evening and everyone got along very well. And, you know, people like Ken Maddy were well known for having outstanding relationships on both sides of the aisle and just being the nicest people possible. So I think I was fortunate to get my start as a lobbyist being around people like that who, you know, showed you that that's the approach you should take in this business. Well, Chris, I definitely want to thank you so much for taking the time. Sure. I can't let you go, though, without you. You have to answer one more question. This is really critical to me. And those on the podcast, you can't see what I'm looking at. I want to know the story behind the McKelly number 50 jersey behind you. 
It's in the, my favorite color is green and gold. You might ascertain from that that I am a longtime Oakland Athletics fan. So I cannot let you go until you tell me what is the story with that jersey. Yeah. So in 2017, working for my then client, the Oakland Athletics, uh, we did a big bill that was authored by then Assemblyman and now Attorney General Rob Bonta to deal with the, at that point, the planned Howard Terminal site of a new ballpark for Oakland in the city of Oakland, there in West Oakland. Um, and we were successful uh, getting it through and the governor signed it. And uh, Dave Cavill, the president of the Oakland A's, uh, made that jersey and framed it and mailed it to uh, me at home. And I remember my wife said, did you order something? And I said, no, well, something came in a big frame. I can't open it. I'll wait for you to get home. And I got home and I opened it up and there was this very nice thank you card from, from Dave Cavill and said, as a token of our appreciation, here it is. The 50, by the way, was for their 50th. That year is their 50th anniversary in Oakland, you know, and, and he said, I thought you'd like this framed jersey. And my wife looked out and said, that is such a nice gift. That was so generous of them. Now take it to the office. So <laughs> I uh, never hung it at home. She told me to bring it to the office. And so there it sits. So very proud display. Unfortunately, you know, sad to see them go as with the other two professional teams in Oakland. But yeah, it's from the Oakland A's. Well, Chris uh, McKaylee, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I highly Anytime. Uh, encourage anybody, if you need to understand what is going on with the California legislative process or the drafting process, uh, you're probably not going to find any better in-depth explanation for how those things work than Chris uh, McKaylee's books. Uh, look them up, um, and maybe we'll even throw them in the show notes, a link in the show notes. In the show notes, we'll put a link to how to get these books. Hey, thanks right. a lot, Chris. Thank you, guys. Hey, take care. Have a take great care. day. Have a great week. All right. Well, thanks to Chris McKaylee for coming on and talking about his new books. Uh, and for everything else Chris McKaylee does for us here at Capital Weekly, we, he's one of our favorite folks, and we really appreciate him. Um, but now, Tim, it's time for our favorite se segment of the show, Who Had the Worst Week in California Politics? The worst week. Worst week. Worst week. I think we've got a pretty good option this week, and that's you know because uh, certainly we former many time candidate down in the San Diego area, a congressional candidate, former uh, college professor, UC San Diego, and and uh, the University of San Diego, and of course best known these days as former Trump advisor uh, Peter Navarro was found guilty of contempt of Congress uh, for not bothering to answer their subpoena uh, when they were in the investigation of the events of January 6, 2021. Uh, he has been convicted, uh, has not been sentenced yet. Uh, we're very sure he's going to appeal. But in the meantime, if you were looking for a comparison, the closest thing I think we can think of is probably Steve Bannon, who was found guilty of a similar charge and sentenced to four months in prison. He has not served that time yet because he is appealing his conviction. But um, if you really wanted to look at who had the worst week in California politics, pretty hard to find anybody that had a maybe. I mean, anytime you get convicted of anything, that's probably a pretty bad week. Wouldn't you say, Tim? 
Yeah, I I mean, I'm not really that familiar with Navarro, although, as you say, he was sort of a perennial candidate for a lot of offices that, if I remember right, he never won any of them. No. Uh, I know he certainly did not win his congressional run, uh, but was a well-respected person, as I understand it, was considered a serious you know, person in California politics at one time and has now sort of gone to the fringes. I mean, if if you can say it's fringe working with the president of the United States, but his uh, what did they call it? The uh, the Wisconsin strategy was that what, yeah. what they were calling it? The Wisconsin strategy certainly seems to be unpopular with the majority of constitutional scholars uh, and legal uh, legal advisors. So. I don't know what happened to this guy. Maybe he just saw this as his one chance to brass ring, but he may end up getting a different ring. Yeah, you know, the thing about Navarro, and again, I don't claim to be an expert, but if you look at his history, it's really interesting because, you know, he started out in theory as a Democrat. Well, he's been a, he's been a Democrat, then an independent, then a Republican, then an independent, then a Democrat. He was once, I mean, I think he, he was a speaker one time at one of uh, uh, the uh, Democratic National Convention. Uh, he supported Hillary Clinton. Uh, you know, he said he's called himself a Reagan Democrat, a Trump Democrat. He's railed about the, all the failures of, of Reaganomics. And then in 2016, he became an economic policy advisor to Donald Trump and seems to have really gone over to that side of the aisle. He bought a ticket on the Trump train. He, he bought a ticket and he bought a first class ticket on the Trump train for everything we can see. But he seems more like a, a chameleon. And, you know, it's pretty easy to look at him and see him as a as an opportunist, you know, as a guy who seems to seems to want certain things. And he's willing to go whichever way he thinks the wind is blowing strongest. And, then you know, sometime here in the future, the winds may be blowing strongest toward a federal penitentiary. So hard to say anybody had a worse week in California than Peter Navarro. Yeah, um, I mean, it is, we're recording this on Friday afternoon. So if somebody really wants to get down in the weeds on Saturday, they better they better get busy. Yeah, there, there's still time, but not a lot of time. So um, I think right now he's he's the leader in the clubhouse. So I think uh, we're going to go that direction. Uh, Tim, as always, yeah. it was a lot of fun having having Chris McKaylee come on, like I said, and it's always fun talking about who had the worst week in California politics. Yeah. All right, Rich. Well, we'll see you next week. Absolutely. Take care, everybody. We'll see you next time. The Capital Weekly Podcast is produced by Tim Foster for Open California. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll go onto iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a positive review. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.